Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Haunted Nights Live. This is Alistair Cross, and I am here with my co-host, Tamara Thorne. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit our websites at TamaraThorne.com and AlistairCross.com. You can also give our Haunted Nights Live page a like on Facebook or visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com. If you tweet, our Twitter handle is at thorncross. We'd like to give a very big special thank you to W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Uh, tonight, we have a guest that we are super excited to have. Um, I am going to uh, read his bio, and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, his uh, upcoming book. Christopher Moore is the author of 15 novels, including the international bestsellers Lamb, A Dirty Job, and You Suck. His latest novel, Secondhand Souls, will be released in August 2015. Chris was born in Toledo, Ohio, and grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. His father was a highway patrolman, and his mother sold major appliances at a department store. He attended Ohio State University and Brooks Institute of Photography in Santa Barbara. He moved to California when he was 19 and lived on the Central Coast until 2003 when he moved to Hawaii. Before publishing his first novel, Practical Demon Keeping, in 1992, he worked as a roofer, a grocery clerk, a hotel night auditor, an insurance broker, a waiter, a photographer, and a rock and roll DJ. Chris has drawn on all these work experiences to create the characters in his books. And when he's not writing, he enjoys ocean kayaking, scuba diving, photography, and painting with acrylics and oils. He lives in San Francisco. Um, now here is my co-host, Tamara Thorne, who is going to tell you a little bit about his new book, Secondhand Souls. Yeah, Secondhand Souls is a sequel to A Dirty Job, which was a great book about death. The funniest book about death I've ever read, in fact, until <laughs> now. Um, it's uh, it's uh, and it comes out tomorrow, I believe. Um, Secondhand Souls this this description will fill you in a little bit on a dirty job too it seems like only yesterday that charlie asher took on a very dirty job collecting souls keeping the force of darkness a eh? the new gig came with the big book and a host of other oddities creatures under the streets an evil trinity of raven-like celtic death goddesses and one very bad world attempting to conquer humanity are you hearing that Hello. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what's going on. Hearing, I, yeah. you're, you're cutting out. I'm going to close some. Are you there? Okay. Yeah, I'll just, okay. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep going. With it. 
Okay, keep going with it. Creatures under the streets, an evil trinity of raven-like Celtic death goddesses, and one very bad underworld dude attempting to conquer humanity. Along with a cohort of other oddballs, Charlie faced off against these denizens of darkness and met his own end. But thanks to Audrey, his Buddhist nun boo, his soul is still alive inside a 14-inch high body made from lunch meat and spare animal parts. Waiting for Audrey to find him a suitable new body to play host, Charlie has squirreled himself away from everyone, including his adorable seven-year-old daughter, Sophie, who enjoys dressing up like a princess, playing with her glitter ponies, and being the Luminatus, spouting off about her power over the underworld and her dominion over death. Just when Charlie and company thought the world was safe, some really freaky stuff hit San Francisco. People are dying, but their souls are not being collected. Someone or something is stealing them and no one knows where they're going or why, but it has something to do with that big orange bridge. Then there's the taser-wielding banshee keening about doom who suddenly appeared while Sophie's guardian hellhounds Alvin and Muhammad have mysteriously vanished. Charlie is just as flummoxed as everyone else to get to the bottom of this abomination. He and a motley crew of heroes will band together, the seven-foot-tall, 275 pounds of lean heartache, death merchant Minty Fresh, the retired policeman-turned-bookseller Alphonse Rivera, the lunatic emperor of San Francisco and his dogs Bummer and Lazarus, Mike Sullivan, a bridge painter in love with a ghost, a gentle French-speaking janitor named Jean-Pierre Baptiste, and former goth girl Lily Darkwillow Elven Thing Severo, now a part-time suicide hotline counselor, with little babbling, with little Sophie babbling about the coming battle for every soul of humankind. Time is definitely not on their side. Uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Christopher Moore. Are you there, Chris? I am here. Hi, are you there, Tamara? I am. That was Blog oh. Talk Radio, evidently putting a commercial in. Oh, <laughs> well, good for them. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that, Chris. <laughs> it happens. Okay. <laughs> how are, oh, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so your your new book is about to be released in, what is it, five days? Um, it comes out, uh, what's this, this Thursday? Yeah, that sounds about right, five days. Nice. So, so can you talk a little bit about what you're doing uh, in preparation for that? Well, the last day or so, I've been sort of shoring up details about I'm going to be here, you know, in this city on that day, and then you know all the logistic details of it. So, um, it's wildly uninteresting, but it's logistics stuff <laughs> that you do before a big trip. You know, the thing is that you know once I leave San Francisco, I'm gone for I think twenty. 25 days, something like that. So wow. everything, you have to handle everything in advance that's going to get handled and you have to anticipate everything in advance. And I'm not really that kind of, I, I, I like, you know, dealing with a trip when I'm getting ready to go on, get on the plane. Um, and you can't do that yeah. with book, book tour because you don't, there's no room for slop. There's nothing, if something goes yeah. wrong, you know, yeah. and so, so that's what I've been doing. Um, and as well as, you know, quite a few, uh, print interviews that I do by phone and so forth and a couple of uh, radio interviews and so forth. They, you know, as you guys well know, the PR starts before the actual book comes out. So yes, I've been doing a little yeah. bit of that. Uh, um, how many uh, people can find out on your website, which is chrismore.com? Yeah, just chrismore.com and just click the tour link and that'll tell you where all I'm going to be. And, um, and then so tomorrow I'm going to go sign like 2,000 books at Book, book Sync that they're going to ship out all oh, over the country. Ouch. And, uh, it's, it, you, that's a 
a great thing to have to do. I got to tell you, I'm, yeah, it, sounds, it, it sounds like a big deal, but uh, it's, it's a, it's awesome that I get to do that and that people all over really the country get to have signed copies, you know, even in towns that I'm never going to go to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know right. the mysterious galaxy. It's getting their signed copies now and that's in San Diego. Get them there. And yeah. what, what other cities are you hitting? A few of them. Um, Denver, Seattle, Portland, uh, Phoenix, Boston, Raleigh, North Carolina, where I've never been, um, Philadelphia, couple of places in Michigan because there's a special library benefit at Grand Rapids and then Ann Arbor, Chicago, Milwaukee. Wow. Um, and about five, LA, San Diego, did I say San Diego? And then about five or six places in the Bay Area. So, uh, and I'm probably mm -hmm. forgotten somebody who's going to be steamed at me because I forgot. <laughs> oh, oh, Atlanta. Yeah, I'm going to do, I have, uh, I have a gig in Atlanta too on, uh, I want to say Labor Day. Nice. Yeah, just check chrismore.com and see when he's coming to your town. Yeah, and I'm on uh, face, Facebook as the author guy, and I'm on Twitter as at the author guy. So, you know, through one of those links or the other, you can find yeah. the, the tour schedule. Yeah. I, I want mm -hmm. to ask you a couple of questions about the reading that we just sort of, the, the interesting reading that the nice French lady interrupted there. Um, <laughs> uh, the Emperor of San Francisco, I know that's a real person, maybe more than one. One person over these did you decide to use him, your version of him? Um, tell us. Yeah. Yeah, Tamara, you're kind of breaking up. Are you hearing that, Alistair? Yeah, it is. It is. It's it's, it it's is? breaking. Yep, it yeah. still is. I don't know what that. What the I, deal is? I'm, I'm just. I'll go ahead and, and try and answer your question, but, okay. it, but I, I'm going to switch to the phone. Okay, do that. Okay. Yeah, I, I got gotcha. you. Okay. okay, I'll okay, answer thanks. that question. Anyway, the Emperor of San Francisco is based on. Uh, Emperor Norton, a guy named Joshua Norton, who came to San Francisco in uh, the 1860s, early 1860s. And he was an Englishman um, and he saw sort of a businessman and he saw all the Chinese in, in Northern California. And he thought, if I could just corner the rice market, right. um, <laughs> I, I would be able, I would make my fortune. And of course, California at that time, everybody was there to make their fortune, you know, around San Francisco. So, um, he bought all the rice futures and the bottom fell out of rice and he went broke and insane and declared himself emperor of San Francisco, protector of Mexico. Oh, and, wow. um, and he would do, uh, give uh, proclamations. Taylor's made, uh, I'm hearing all sorts of messages, you guys. Yeah. I, don't know. Um, um, I would hear, uh, I, I would, he would put, put out proclamations and the printers would print them up and tailors made him these fancy jackets with epaulets and top hats and so forth. And, and the people of San Francisco sort of treated him like the emperor of San Francisco. Um, and uh, so I was doing my first book set in San Francisco, which I wrote back in 94, I think called blood sucking fiends and the homeless problem, which hasn't really gotten better, but it, I was sort of my first exposure to a big city. And I, I, walked around San Francisco a lot and I encountered the homeless a lot. And I, and, and I thought that this would be a great sort of character to represent the dignity of those people that, you know, I, I was always one paycheck away from being when I was right. working a real job. And, um, and so I brought the, the emperor into the modern world. And so we had a, this sort of grandiose, you know, nuthouse Napoleon. And the, the difference between him and every other sort of grandiose narcissist is that he's really concerned about the people of his city. He's really worried about them. 
And uh, and this sort of continues through all the San Francisco books, which are You Suck and Bite Me and A Dirty Job and now um, Secondhand Souls. So he was, he, I sort of brought him into the book from from the past and, and he was just sort of there to represent uh, what I like to think of as just the dignity of the people who have fallen on hard times. Nice, nice. So let's, let's, I want to talk about your, your very um, beginnings. Uh, when did you um, first start writing and decide that you want to do this as, as a career? And what was your path to publication like? Well, I, I first started writing when I was about 11 or 12. And I just was, I, I was good at it, I guess. Um, but I didn't start thinking about um, publication until I was about 16, so whatever that is, a junior in high school. And mm -hmm. I almost immediately thought, okay, I'll never be able to make a living at this. And when you come from a working class background in a, in a factory town, you know, that's, you can't as aspire to be something like a writer. Nobody's ever seen a writer. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, that's <laughs> not a real thing. You might as well, yeah, I'm going to be a unicorn when I grow up. And, um, and so I, I sort of thought, well, I'll, try I had a friend who was into photography and got me into photography and um, I thought I'll try and do that for a living I'll go to school for photography but I but I always wrote and and sort of got off track and ended up in California and it was just doing what I do to make a living and yeah. I, I think it was about uh, 25 and uh, my my girlfriend at the time said you know there's this writers conference down the a highway and uh, you always said that you wrote and you should go to that and I thought, okay. And so I wrote a couple of stories for the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, and I went and and uh, I read them, and and people loved them, and they were horror stories, and people were laughing at the way I turned the <laughs> phrase. And I thought, oh, I guess that's what I do. And um, <laughs> and the guy who ran the comedy workshop, the comedy writing workshop, you know, said you need to come back. Um, a guy named Ian Bernard, who had been one of the uh, writers on Laugh-In, the head musical writer on there too. So anyway, um, that I sort of started to write. You know, I was selling insurance at the time. I was an insurance broker, and it was a wildly unsatisfying thing to do for a living. You know, because you basically yeah. are just lying to people, not necessarily about the product, but just about who you were, um, because you just. And I wrote a book later on, Coyote Blue, where a, a character is like that. You just, you know, do what T.S. Eliot said, you put on a face to meet a face. And if they want you to be a Republican, that's who you are. And if they want mm -hmm. you to be a Democrat, that's who you are, or a Catholic, or whatever, because that doesn't matter. It doesn't affect, you know, what you're selling. And and uh, so it, it wasn't a real reconcilable uh, job with mental health. And um, right. when I got sort of found out that other people thought I was good at writing. I thought, well, maybe this is what I'll try and do. And I sort of adjusted my life uh, to go toward that and ended up moving to a place that was cheaper to live because that was one of the things about living in Santa Barbara is you pretty much had to work full time just to you know, keep your head above water. And yeah. I, moved, I moved to the central coast of California and started pursuing it. And about, uh, I don't know, three or four years later, I sold my first story to some men's magazine that I have never seen, but it looked good in the writer's market. You know, they said, you know, we <laughs> yeah. horror stories and I you know, must have one. It was a African-American uh, men's magazine called players. And, um, and the story was, I had written about a guy playing three card Monty on the street with death. And he was, you know, he, he basically talked like Eddie Murphy's first album. Cause that's where right. I got it. <laughs> that's how, you know, there were, uh, 
I think the the story was like 1,200 words long, and there was 17 motherfuckers in it. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> so it was, but you know, it was published by an African American slanted magazine that was that was edited by African American guys. So I thought, nailed it. Um, <laughs> nice. And uh, and I uh, and I sort of went forward for a few years and started a bunch of novels. Didn't finish them, and then I, I finally through sort of trials and tribulations in personal life and failing in every other other thing i think i was 32 and i i finally finished uh practical demon keeping and um took 11 months of trying to get agents and all that stuff and and what happened was it sold to disney as a film um the film rights sold before it was a book oh, and, wow. uh, and there was a bidding war between Dis i was waiting tables at the time to make a living and, and ah. a bidding war between all the studios and you know disney called me at work or my agent at the time called me at at work and said, you know, Disney says they'll give you $350,000, but you have to answer them before eight o'clock. Oh, wow. And, and wow. I said, I, I said, and, and he said, if it goes to auction in the morning, their offers off the table and Paramount and Warner were supposed to be putting, you know, deals together. And I'm literally sweating the $5 tip off of table nine at the time. Right. This guy was throwing <laughs> yeah. this at me, you know, and we're talking like 1990, I think. And, wow. um, and I said, well, tell them that you're authorized to accept 400, but but you can't get a hold of me. And mind you, this is when th at that time cell phones are like the size of a brick. You know, yeah. so, <laughs> so not getting hold of somebody is 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 a very credible thing to do. And in fact, in that town that I was in, they still don't get good cell phone reception. But um, anyway, so he said they'll never believe that. And I go, well, just you know, see what you can do. I I have garlic bread burning. It needs to go to table five. So, uh, <laughs> so I hung up on him and and uh, he calls back about a half an hour later and he goes, well, we closed at $400,000. I go, what'd you tell him? And and he said, I told him that I was authorized to close at 400, but I couldn't get hold of you. And I go, what am I paying you for? Um, <laughs> you know, I'm the amateur, you know? And I, so any, and I, meanwhile, all the drunks in the bar, the restaurant I'm working in are going, you need to get into real estate, you know? And it was just, uh, <laughs> uh, and I, I was so scattered. I just took my apron off and put it over my bus girl's head and I went, you're now a weight person. This is, here's my, here's, you know, it was like I was handing her the sword, uh, you know, uh, from the stone, you know, it's, you are now the king of England. Um, it's like, you're now promoted. Here's my section. I'll, I'll bust your tables, but you, you've got to handle it. It's, and um, so that, wow. that sort of is how it played out. And then the book uh, went on to sell in, in a bunch of other countries and sold as a book in, in New York. But uh, that's how I broke in. And, and I uh, immediately, quit my job at the at the restaurant because people needed shifts you know it was it was yeah. early 90s and and uh, <laughs> i all of a sudden was rich i guess and uh yeah yeah as it turned out i didn't get paid for like eight months and, yes. <laughs> and so i was just kiting i was just kiting <laughs> credit cards to pay my rent and so <laughs> mastercard would go you know what we'll give you a two thousand dollar advance and you can you can put all of your other credit cards on this and i go that'd be lovely so i would do that and pay my rent yeah. and i had a i had a friend who owned the diner that i wrote my book in you know i wrote the whole thing at the counter of a diner because i the place i was living i didn't have enough room for a desk i was living oh. in a friend, friend's basement so so uh, he would give me uh, grilled cheese, grilled ham and cheese sandwiches on credit. So I had this huge grilled ham and cheese tab that I didn't have to pay in, until until the money from the book came. And the, the same guy gave me the computer I actually 
put the manuscript in because I wrote the book wow. on like legal pads, you know, the all <laughs> nice. 75 pages of handwritten legal pads before I ever put it in a computer and, and I couldn't afford wow. it to see at the time. So he said, I've got this one and, and you can just pay me for it when the book sells. So wow. I did. Um, yeah. So that was how I broke in. And then I, I, and then I wrote 14 more books and here we are. Nice. What a great story though. What a, I mean, that's, that's classic. And how, I got to ask, what town was this? Um, the, the town I was working in is called Harmony, and it's uh, the town that I lived in was called uh, Cambria, and it's just south of oh. San Simeon. You know, it's about 5,000 people, and it's, you know, a, yeah. a pine forest okay. right on the a very rocky coast um, I, of California, just of out of Big Sur. Yeah. I beg your pardon? I, I set a book called The Forgotten in Cambria and called it Caledonia. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that place. They used to have the best um, uh, barbecue sandwich place, but it flooded out years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Chuck Wagon that's was great. down in that, that little hollow. Yeah. yeah, I think that's where yeah. they put the desalinization plant now because Cambria was the first. <laughs> yeah. Was I'm serious? That was the they were the first town yeah. in 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 California to actually go dry, and they had to put in a uh, a desal plant. So that's where wow. it is. It's where the old Chuck Wagon used to be. Oh, nice. I miss it. And and the uh, cemetery there is just fantastic. Yeah, my also, book, uh, my book, the stupidest angel is set by in that little chapel by the cemetery. Um, oh, I've been there. That's great. Yeah, that's where that's where the oh. everybody um, on Christmas Eve. That's where everybody um, uh, walls themselves up against the the zombie um, apocalypse that's coming out <laughs> of that graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> um, the general audience may realize where Cambria is. If we tell you, that's where they filmed Arachnophobia. Yeah, Arachnophobia oh, was yeah. filmed there, and actually a couple other. They do scenes from movies there, but not whole films. A lot of uh, carb commercials are done in Cambria and just north oh. of Cambria and Big Sur. A lot, and on the road going over to oh, Paso yeah. Robles. I know because I used to work in hotels in San Simeon, um, and and the mm -hmm. crews were always in there. And it was the weirdest thing because they'd be in the bar at night and you know, a game would be on or some show would be on and they would not be paying attention. And then the commercials would come on and everybody would be quiet and watch, <laughs> you know, because that's what they did. You know, they, they made Honda uh -huh. commercials and, and Nissan commercials and so forth. So, but uh, that's, <laughs> people don't know it, but they've seen Cambria a lot. They just don't know. Yeah. It. And then right. San Simeon is where Hearst Castle is right up the right. road. Yeah. Right. Oh, Let's talk, right. let's talk a little bit about your, your, your process. So like, do you, certain hours every day or do you how, how does your writing process look well when i'm working on a manuscript um i try to write every day and i start as soon as i get up i mean i, I get up make coffee sit down at my desk and um sometimes i'll answer email but but if things are if i'm doing what i should and what i've done for years is i open up and wake up into the book um and I, you know, because I write comedy, it seems, at least this is my excuse. I can only write for about two or three hours before the stuff just isn't funny anymore. Right. Um, and, and so I, uh, so then I'll take a break and maybe go work out or, you know, go to the grocery store and, um, you know, goof around and do life maintenance. And then in the, in the evening, um, if my wife's working, I, I will, uh, you know, plan on what I'm going to write the next day. And a, a lot of, a lot of my books, I don't really rewrite much. So a lot of them are, you know, me thinking about what I'm going to do from day to day. And, and a lot of the writing process isn't like most people think sitting in front of a keyboard. It's, it's actually thinking and reacting to things. I think again, because I write comedy, 
you know, a lot of what I do is reactive. And so it's not going to happen always when I'm sitting at the keyboard. It's going to happen when I'm out reacting with the world. So I always have right. a notebook. I always have a notebook with me, always, always, always. And if something occurs to me, I write it down. Nice. Now, one thing, one thing I have to ask you about, because when I said, you know, that we were, when I started announcing that we were going to have you on the show, we got a lot of people asking about lamb. We love lamb. Oh, <laughs> Everybody <God>. loves lamb. <laughs> that's, that's, that's in like the top three books I've ever read. I well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. we need to too. talk a little bit about that. Um, I guess first off, okay, so lamb. Where did you get the idea for this? It's sort of, um, I was at a point in my career where I'd sort of started to write, you know, I'd written a, a, a couple of books set in Pine Cove, which were based on Cambria, and I'd done one set in Montana, and um, one set in San Francisco, and I, they were all sort of comedy horror things, and I thought I needed to do something more ambitious um, if I were going to get to whatever next level as a commercial fiction writer, um, you know, make the list, as it were. Right. Um, and, um, I was reading, uh, Bulgakov's, uh, the master of Margarita. And there's a scene in that book where, uh, which is for anyone of you who hasn't read it, it's sort of set in 1920s post-revolutionary, uh, Russia. And it's, it's one of the, I think first examples of magic realism. And there's some really, really good uh, wild things go on. Like the devil appears as a cat with a gun, um, and stuff like that. But, uh, but there is a scene in it where you get to see the trial of Jesus from the point of view of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate has a migraine headache, and all he wants is this Jewish kid to go away. He, does, he doesn't have any skin in the game. He's not interested in what's going on. He just wants to not be here because it's Jerusalem, and it's bright, sunny, and it's annoying. And, and it made that story that I had heard a thousand times and you know, as a kid and, and beyond, it made it vivid because of that detail, because of that headache detail, it made it real and visceral. And I thought, what if you could do the whole story that way? And, oh. and, because, and because it's me, it had to be comedy. And because everybody had some idea of what they wanted Jesus to say and, and some idea of what kind of guy they wanted him to be, he couldn't be the guy saying the funny stuff. So I had to invent a guy who would say that. And so I invent Biff, who is Jesus's childhood friend and who is sort of his sidekick and and uh, and that became a story of friendship you know and it, it's sort of the model for it was was um tom sawyer some and and it's sort oh. of it's it, it sort of uh, in fact there's a there's a scene in tom sawyer that's almost mirrored in lamb where in lamb they see a sakari which were um zionist rebels against the romans you know it had a whole different mm -hmm. meaning then than it does now and yeah. they would just assassinate random Romans. Um, and they see a Roman soldier killed um, by this Zionist that they know. And in Tom Sawyer, uh, they see a guy murdered by Indian Joe. And Huck and, and Tom see it. And so they sort of end up on the run because of that. So there's parallels to Tom Sawyer and which casting the Sundance Kid and so forth. So it, it really became a, a buddy story for me. And then the idea for me, you know, that you sort of, I think every project is defined by the ambition that you have for it and I, what i wanted to do mm -hmm. was tell this story in a vis in a visceral way so you could get a feeling for the world that it was set in and get the history right and have it be a story of friendship and have it be funny but not make it an attack book i didn't have anything to say i was just going to go whatever the gospels say that's true i have no 
no interest in making that. All I need to do is make that credible and make it work, which is a lot tougher than yeah. <laughs> that's a lot tougher to do than even it sounds because the, the gospels don't, the four of them don't agree at all on what happened. You know, it's like, are you guys telling the same story or what's going on here? You know? and, uh, and so I have these, um, these sort of elaborate uh, planning diagrams that I came up with that was to try and, well, if Thomas is here and he's here and Bartholomew's here, and a lot of those characters, the disciples were built out of one line that they have in the Bible. A lot of, a lot of the disciples uh -huh. don't even, they don't even get a line. They're just named, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and uh, I think if you count up all the names from the four gospels, there's more than 12 too. Um, uh -huh. So, so there's some of these guys that, you know, have two names or, you know, Thomas is James or whatever. So I had to sort of build those characters off of one or two lines, you know, like I think uh, Nathaniel uh, in the gospels, Jesus meets Nathaniel in Jericho and, and, Jer and, he's, and Jesus says that he's from Nazareth and, and Nathaniel says, well, nothing good ever came from Nazareth. And then, and then, I don't know what happens, but in like the very next line, Nathaniel goes, "Although thou must be the true and the the true and real Lord, uh, uh, the Son of God," and it's like, "What? That was a bit of jump in credibility, you know." <laughs> uh, so, so Nathaniel, his whole character is he's just a simpleton, and um, they refer to Thomas as Thomas the twin in um, in uh, the Gospels, and so I just made Thomas sort of have an imaginary friend that didn't go away when he grew up <laughs> nice. they, they promise you. So, and and the and the thing that that is sweet about that is that joshua because i knew people couldn't reconcile if, if i called him jesus but they could yeah. hang with the character if i called him joshua and so nice. joshua sort of tolerates thomas you know, he's sort of, he's like, you, you don't need to feel bad about the fact that you have an imaginary friend that nobody else can see. You know, and <laughs> Thomas is like, thank you. Don't sit on him. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, so it was, it was a big project and it just, it came out of that, that one moment with that Bulgakov book and, and saying, you know, what if you did the whole thing like this? And, and then the rest of it is a, is a backwards equation of going, how do you do that? Um, you did a lot of research for this, didn't you, for Lamb? Uh, yeah, for that book I did. I read probably 100, yeah. 100 different books on theology and history. And um, I, the Internet wasn't really up and running at that point. No. You know, we sort of had email and, and uh, dial-up AOL. So I, I, there was no um, – yeah. there was no uh, just kind of Googling it and, and – and uh, consolidating all the all the information, it was it was a yeah. you know, I'd have to find the books and order the books and get the books in and read the books and and glean what I could out of them and and so I uh, I read like a hundred books. I spent like three or four weeks in in Israel looking at old stuff and uh, um, old stuff. Well, I, I mean, I I originally, <laughs> yeah. originally wasn't going to go. I was I was not going to go right. because I went. Okay, the people I'm writing about have been dead for two thousand years. So what am I going to get? Because I'd always uh -huh. gone to the areas I wrote about to get sort of a feeling of of reality for it. And my wife said, "No, you need to go. You know, you always get something that you didn't expect when when you go." And then I said, "Okay, I will." And then she went off to Hawaii, and I went to like this hellhole that is <laughs> Israel in August, and uh, uh -huh. and. Uh, <laughs> 
and looked at you know piles of rocks that evidently used to be temples but it was uh but it did inform the book it did help it the the harshness yeah. and the brutality of the landscape alone makes you so when you start reading that okay they made the pilgrimage from nazareth to jerusalem four times a year that's a sentence but when you look at what that entails in the in the kind of country that they lived in that's a mm -hmm. big deal that's a huge yeah. act yeah. of faith yeah. and then you know when you talk that a lot of scenes in the gospels are set in jericho or in judea and it's the most desolate place i've ever seen oh I mean, when you go to the Sonora Desert or the, or the High Desert in the, in, in California, yeah. you there's stuff there. There's living things. There was yeah. nothing in oh. Judea. I mean, they call it the Dead Sea for a reason. And um, you uh. know, all of a sudden, a guy would be leading a herd of goats out of a out of a valley, and you'd go, "What are they eating? What are they eating?" There is not a vegetable in, in sight anywhere. Oh, and so you know that wow. that helped inform it. And uh, yeah. and then you know the the old city of Jerusalem. I'm sure it wasn't the same but you know the the wailing wall is is a is the last remaining wall of solomon's temple that was uh, destroyed in 2000 oh. or in um in 70 a.d so so that was there during jesus's time so you can get sort of a feel for what it was oh, like yeah. I, I think it i think it helped inform the book and that was it Definitely. was important to me it, it was important to me to to have that to have that feeling of this is the world the story takes place in because i had never felt that um, it had been sufficiently communicated to me what the Jewish people were to the Romans and what the Romans were to them and what the religious climate was under which Jesus did his um, evangelis evangelizing, evangelizing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. It, it, yeah, I mean, he was, it, it was sort of like the, the Jewish people of which all of the apostles were, we're expecting a messiah but this guy wasn't what you know they were expecting and they were expecting someone to lead them against the romans and to banish the romans and that's not the guy that showed up um you know the guy that showed up was talking uh -huh. about you know forgive your enemies and yeah. you know, put, down, right. put down your sword for he who lives by the sword dies by the sword and so it was important to me to to portray that and also to portray this very proud warrior people who had the foot of the roman empire on their neck you know they, they, they right. were life was tough and and the pharisees at the time were like the taliban i mean they're, they're this very yeah. legalistic um strict fundamentalist uh sect that you know it would eventually lead uh, to the talmud and and to and to the um what is modern um judaism but at the time they uh -huh. were pretty uh, they were a pretty rough bunch um, yeah. You know, the whole, you know, you could be stoned to death for like going more than a journey of more than 500 steps on the Sabbath and stuff like that. So I mean, there's a lot of that. It's extraordinarily boring. I realize talking about it now, but that's what went into it. And I had to figure out how to make that happen in the context of a comedy. Right. And you did and it you... so well. I would never read anything yeah. like that without the humor. But I wanted to ask you, the thing that I remember most besides the opening, which was laugh out loud funny. I remember reading it and then reading it to my husband. He's trying to grab the book away from me. He liked it so well. He had to wait though. Was Jesus and Lazarus, Jesus or Joshua, he did not bring people back from the dead so well. I thought that was the most endearing quality. <laughs> How did you decide I, to do that? I, well, yeah. He, blows it a couple of times he tries to raise a roman soldier and he doesn't yeah. get it right and that was one of the points too was that this guy didn't um 
you know, forgive the metaphor, he didn't just spring full developed from the head of Zeus. He had to yeah. learn how to be the Messiah. And sort of the story of it is because that, uh, you know, there's 30, basically 30 years of Christ's life that's not in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. You know, you have his birth and yeah. then you have his ministry, but that's what happened the rest of the, you know, there's one scene yeah. where he teaches um, at the at the temple when he's 12. But other than that, we don't know where he was. And so I had, I figured, well, he probably had to learn this. And so the, he, yes, he's not, one of my favorite jokes is, um, in, in that is when Lazarus come and it's, and it's, you have to, it doesn't translate to other languages, but when he's, um, they open the tomb and Lazarus is coming forth and he's really icky and he smells <laughs> awful. And they go, I thought he would smell like a cat. And he's, why? <laughs> because he's a leopard. And he goes, he's not a leopard. <laughs> he's a leper. <laughs> and like, it was, you know, people ask me, do there anything crack you up? That still cracks me up. And it's because it's oh. so, it's so profoundly silly that it was just the, yeah. Yeah, I'm not really a big fan of puns, but I just love the idea that they oh. thought, oh no, it's a leopard. He's going to be like a, like a, like a big cat. Uh, oh. So, and, uh, but I'm, I'm sure people in France and Germany are going, was? Because um, <laughs> it's not the same word. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, uh, uh, for uh, anybody who is just joining us, we are talking to New York Times bestselling author Christopher Moore, uh, the author of Lamb, You Suck, and the upcoming sequel to A Dirty Job, Secondhand Souls. Uh, thank you for listening, and be sure to give us a like on our Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights live page on Facebook. And stay tuned, because we have upcoming guests such as Edward Erdelak, Robert Masello, Jonathan Mayberry, Michael Slade, and Diana Love. In other Thorn and Cross news, our haunted hotel novel, The Cliff House Haunting, is available now at Amazon, as well as the eighth installment of The Ghosts of Ravencrest, which is titled Spellbound. The Ghost of Ravencrest is a serialized gothic novel in the vein of Dark Shadows and Rebecca, with new installments appearing about every four to six weeks. Lastly, my debut novel, A Vampire Tale, titled The Crimson Corset, is currently available on Amazon. You can visit my website at alistaircross.com to learn more about it. And for more information about Tamara's work, her website is tamarathorn.com. Again, we are talking to Christopher Moore. And um, I'm curious now about your, what made you decide to do a sequel to A Dirty Job? Um, reader Demand. Reader it Demand? Just so many, yeah, I think that book came out in 2006 and I've just had so many people that said, I wanna see more of it, I wanna see more of it, I wanna see more of it. And um, I, uh, I just reached a place where, I, and this often happens with my books, the settings of my books is that, you know, I. I thought I, I don't have a specific place I want to go to learn about. And so I'll set a book in San Francisco and it made sense to do the one that people had been asking for, for years. Um, mm -hmm. And that was, that was sort of what made the decision was just, uh, and, and a lot of my books in the past, I've put elements in them because I have always had a, a lot of back and forth with my readers and, and I listened to them, you know, so thus, I have a giant Micronesian fruit bat in my Christmas book that takes place in the central coast of California because <laughs> you know, people wanted more Roberto and I didn't want to write a whole book about Micronesia. So I brought him <laughs> to California. So, um, so that I've written by request before and that was really why I did it. Nice. I, yeah, and I, I, 
Oh, I was talking to Chelsea Quinaro, our mutual friend, about um, the less lizard of melancholy cove once, and she said, "Well, that's just uh, the retelling of Steppenwolf." I, I remember saying, "Thank God, now I don't have to read Steppenwolf." That was a fun book, but is that true? No, Steppenwolf is oh. is no Steppenwolf oh, okay. is is ruined more people. I, that book messed me up for about two <laughs> years when I was sixteen. <laughs> no, the less lizard of melancholy cove was. Um, it came out of a completely different place. It came, it came out of uh, the fact that, you know, as you guys know, and as Quinn knows, as an author, when you're not working on a book, you go out to lunch a lot because it's kind of what you oh, can yeah. do. And so I would go out to lunch and all my friends would be putting a pill beside their their glass of water or their beverage. And I'd go, what's that? And they go, oh, it's my antidepressant. And then about one, at a rate of about one a month, someone would call me and go, oh my God, my life is falling apart. My relationship is shit. My career is awful. I hate it all. And I'm like, and I learned to ask this question, have you gone off your medication? <laughs> and they go, yeah, I don't need it anymore. And it's like, well, <laughs> and so a friend of mine was the diagnostician at a Tascadero State Hospital, and he was a gym friend. Uh -huh. It was like a guy I only saw at the gym, and we were both on the Stairmaster one day, and I go, Roger, is there a, like a set of symptoms when you go off of antidepressants that one can look for? And he says, oh, yeah, you have whatever sent you to SSRIs. Will, you'll probably get those symptoms worse. So if you went there because you were manic or if you went there because you were depressed or whatever, um, then you'll, you'll have those symptoms. But plus there's also a huge increase in libido because they suppress your libido. So not only will you be depressed, you'll be horny. And I was like, that would make an awesome book. What if you took a whole <laughs> town and took them off? Because when you live in a little town like that, you realize that that could happen. And it actually happened in reverse in a town in Washington. I think it was a place called Wenatchee where the, this one psychiatrist had never really diagnosed anybody. He just put people on Prozac. And so the entire town was on Prozac. So I just created a scenario where um, a, the psychiatrist has does the same thing and then has a, loses a patient because of, she doesn't really give them any therapy. She just gives them drugs. And, and uh, so she takes everybody off of their antidepressants and puts them on, uh -huh. on uh, placebos, which she can do because everybody gets their drugs at the, at the same drugstore, which in a town like Cambria they do. So oh, yeah. um, so that's something that was doable. And then I thought, well, and then what would happen? And say, well, of course, then there would be a sea monster named Steve who would. <laughs> All of that. That's the logical. You know, if you look it up in the DSM-4, that's what's the next symptom. Uh, sea monster. Um, and, and so, yeah. So the idea that, that all these animals, you know, being, uh, on you know this condition that that resonated when they all were on low SSR, SSR inhibitors um, would draw this ancient predator from the bottom of the sea and he would come into town and start feeding on them seemed you know like well that'll be fun um, but it had nothing to do with Steppenwolf was just a book I needed to recover from you know I don't think it ever influenced anything I did but which is not to say that that uh, you know it couldn't be argued because that's, you know, if you're in yeah. academics, that's definitely what you should do is just make up shit that the, oh, you know, sure. that, that the author, <laughs> yeah, he was definitely influenced by this book he never read, but <laughs> I, get, <laughs> I, I get that. I got that uh, last week in a questionnaire and um, was uh, somebody said, how much were you influenced by Terry Pratchett? Cause I can really see it. And I'm like, 
I didn't even read a Terry Pratchett book until I had six books in print, you know? Um, yeah. So not as much as you might think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, Isn't that uh, awesome? I mean, it's it, it's interesting because it. I think people, you know, they 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 do see that, and and a lot of times it's that's not the case at all. You know, it's well, you know, a, a lot of things. A lot of times, it's just parallel thinking. I mean, you're if you've got people with an imagination and they're working along, and you know, they're sort of working in the same fields, you're going to run up against the same stuff. Sure. And um, and so I can understand with, especially if you look at my Shakespeare-based books, you know, I could see because it's a bunch of English people being smart asses, which right. is what Terry's <laughs> stuff is, you know. So, uh, so I, I could see where you might draw that conclusion, but it's just, you know, it, it doesn't really have much to do with yeah. reality. I mean, I had, Lamb had Monty Python jokes in it, you know, where that's <laughs> Oh. In fact, the first guy that Jesus brings back from the dead, he, you know, he 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 won't believe that he's dead, and the, oh. the uh, and the uh, centurion who's in charge of him goes, "Yeah, sure, you're bleeding out." You said, "No, it's just a flesh wound." That was oh. totally oh. a tribute. To oh yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> See, and yeah. I didn't catch that. I didn't catch that. Do yeah. You, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it, it's that the whole point, yeah. and and this is really necessary, is you have to be able to read these books without getting all the references. Right. Yeah, right. You have to be able to read the biblical one without having read the Bible, and you have to be able to read the Shakespeare ones without having read the plays. You know, um, if you did, it might enrich it. But I, I I write them so that they hopefully will stand on their own. You did no, well do because you, I've practically memorized Monty Python, so um, and I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, it was it was tone. I mean, it's more of a like I said, it's yeah. more of a tribute than a than a lifting of it. It was just sort of yeah. I, I think of the Black Knight, and it's, you know, we just yeah. standing at the, at the bridge, and it, and it, no arms, no legs. Come on, you coward! And I was just sort of <laughs> having the Romans just sit there and, and deny that he's dead. You know, when he's yeah. just there's gaping chest wounds. But uh, so so yeah, there is influence, but it's not yeah. it's not always what people extrapolate. No. Do you do you? feel ever feel like a uh, is there a pressure to be funny oh yeah oh yeah do I do. you resent that ever do you ever feel like i don't want to be funny i don't i don't know if i can be funny um those last two yeah but i don't resent it because it's it's an expectation i set up you know, it's, right. it's, yeah. it's something that, that I know going into a book that no matter what the, and I've done this where I've had to give a plot to somebody in Hollywood and at uh -huh. the end of it, they go, or, you know, an outline or something at the end, they go, is it funny? And I go, have you ever read a funny outline? It's not the medium <laughs> yeah. really, you know, or a yeah. synopsis is not really funny. Um, I don't like right. writing synopses for my books and other people usually do it like jacket copy. I don't write. I know some authors right. that just it's sacrosanct and they have to do it. I won't do it and can't do it. Oh. So if I could do it in a hundred words, why did I write a hundred thousand? Right. Um, exactly. But um, yeah, I do, I do feel that Alistair. I feel, I, I feel a pressure, but it's, it's what I do. It's what I set up to do. I think that if I wrote a book that, I mean, I can, I, I the way I feel it, is I can write a book about anything and my readers will stay with me as long as it's funny. Right. You know, and I have, yeah. I've written about art and Shakespeare and, you know, whales and all kinds of different subjects, but what people, the, I can almost hear them kind of, you know, lifting an eyebrow going, what is this? Where's the vampires in this? And then, you know, they, they understand that I'll get them through and it, and there's going to be funny stuff in it. Um, 
that might go away someday. I mean, I might wake up and mm-hmm. not be able to do that because I have right. no idea where it comes from. I couldn't teach it to you and I couldn't tell you how I do it. It's just something that right. I got, you know. Um, yeah. Like some people can, you know, hit a baseball and and that's something I can do. And I, I couldn't tell you where it came from. But, um, but it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's fascinating. Oh, it's fascinating. Hold my microphone up. It's fascinating because... Uh, I'm allegedly funny. I cannot imagine being funny on purpose. It's just what the characters decide to channel. But you're doing yeah. it on purpose. That is so intimidating. It, it does. <laughs> it sounds. It sounds like a lot of pressure. Like I would think. Well, I don't. I don't. You know. I don't know. I. I, I think it would be. Uh, I think I would uh, end up not liking that. I mean, there's always humor. You know, and everything. You know, and everything. Yeah. We do it. It. You know, there's going to be humor, but. I think it would be really, really hard to be a humor writer. Say I'm going to write a yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to write a funny book. That's scary. Well, I think it is, and I'm not. <laughs> this is not to say you know, dig me. It's just name all the funny novelists that yeah. you can think of that are true. Their stuff is truly funny because I. Yeah. I pick up books all the time that the blurb in the outset says hilarious, and I read it and I go, "This is not hilarious." Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, um, it's not easy. And and so, but uh, but by the same token, it's not because you know I went through, you know, comedy writer boot camp yeah. or anything. Right. It's it's, <laughs> it's just I'm able to do it. And and as I as I said earlier on, I thought I was a horror story writer, and I would read my stuff to workshops, and people would be laughing at the way I turned a phrase. And I thought, okay, I guess but this see, is what I do. Yeah. But see, you know? you you kind of are, and this is why. I mean, this is this is pretty much a, a horror themed show, and we had no problem, you know, getting you. You have uh, elements yeah. of horror that are so sure. good. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And that brings us to secondhand souls and death. Um, yeah. What do you think it is about death? especially the way that you present death that people enjoy so much? Um, I, I think it, I think I defanged it a little bit because I am laughing at it and it's, and it's okay to do that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, as Westerners, we tend to shove death into the back room, you know, and there was, there was a time, you know, a hundred years ago, 150 years ago where, you know, if grandma died, she was in the living room for a week, unless she yeah. lived in a hot, unless she lived in a hot climate. We don't do that anymore. And I'm not, saying that necessarily we should, but I'm, I'm saying that, you know, we, we push it aside and we act like it doesn't exist. And we all at some level think that we're immortal. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, I'm, I'll be 58 next month and I'm, I still sort of go, well, I know everybody dies, but maybe not me. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, well, when you're, you know, when, you know, because it's hard to wrap a consciousness around the concept that that consciousness that you're wrapping isn't going to be there. You know, and yeah. I, I, that's a that's a human problem that goes back to, you know, when we were just t- trying to find fire. Um, th- in fact, the very first uh, Dirty Job has an epigraph from the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the first story anybody wrote down anytime. And um, and it, I, I believe it's something like. Uh, um, th- Love the child whose hand you hold in uh, delight in your wife's embrace for these alone are the concerns of man for when the gods made men, they kept immortality for themselves. And that's what the story of Gilgamesh is, is, is a, the story of a king who, who strives for immortality. And that's 4,000 years old, um, wow. maybe older. I've, it's been a while since I've talked about that. And, and so, uh, so I think it's, 
that's what people like about it is the characters are likable and you can relate to them. And if you can relate to them, you can relate to the experience that they're going through. Right. So I think the, 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 I don't, people are not picking it up because, Oh, it's death. I think they're right. picking it up because this is a fun story of, and it in a way makes death. Not, you don't necessarily overcome it, although there is some of that. Um, uh -huh. But, but you, you, everybody has to, resolve themselves to it at somewhere somewhere or another the epigraph in this one is from the tibetan book of the dead which is um um and, and i'm i'm paraphrasing because i don't have to exact but it, it's something like you have to move on for you cannot stay here any more than you a baby can stay in the womb um everybody dies and and that's sort of accepted in Buddhist tradition as being this is part of the process of living and dying and that's the mm -hmm. translation of the book of the dead is the book of living and dying um, right. and 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 I think that these two books uh, they just acknowledge that in sort of a fun goofy way that you know you I try to reveal of sort of not harmless but just perspective on these different things you know we have you know in this book lily who was sort of working with the counter at charlie's secondhand shop in in the first book she's working as a suicide counselor talking to people on the golden gate bridge and you know that i just thought well that'll be fun because she's so dark you know and and um and so she really treats it like like a game in, in a way and um and so i just sort of come at it in a different way and i think it's it makes it a little less dark and a little less ominous and a, and a little mm -hmm. easier to accept Alistair. You know, that's, that's yeah. why I think people like it. I think, and you know, and the, the end of every question about why do people like it's cause it's funny. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, well, and that's we, really, we, and if it wasn't funny, I don't know how yeah. many people would have. I know. Like <laughs> to, to the envy of all our listeners, uh, Tamara and I both received a copy of secondhand souls and we have both, read it and read it. loved it. Loved excellent, it. excellent oh, stuff. I highly recommend it. And it'll be out yes. on August 25th. Yeah. Um, we're almost we out another, of time. Yeah. Yes, yes. Let's, we're almost out of time. Yes. But I wanted to ask you about your character, Charlie Asher. Um, mm -hmm. If if Charlie Asher had a theme song, what would it be? Oh, man. I, um, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a, let me catch, catch you flat-footed. You know, the first thing that came to mind in a very in a in a very sort of uh, Rorschach way. The first thing that came to mind was "Ain't Misbehaving." Um, it just it, it feels like it feels like uh, it feels like Charlie's always just trying to do the right thing. You know, he's just striving to do the right thing, and he's in a situation where it it becomes the right thing just becomes so bizarre that he's constantly. Um, having to use his imagination to sort of the unrealness of, of his situation. And, and I, I talk a lot about Charlie as being the quintessential beta male, which are those of us who, who survived, who stayed in the gene pool, not because we were particularly strong or fast, but because we were, we had an imagination that could allow us to avoid danger, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and so, and there's, there's quite a treatise actually on that in the first book. Um, but it, it continues into this one. So, so ain't misbehaving. I was the first thing that came to mind. So I'm just going to go with that. Uh, All right. How about Sophie? How about Sophie? God, I don't, um, <laughs> she's a big fan of, of my little ponies. And, um, oh. <laughs> let's see. 
I, you know, I it just I'm trying to get it. It's it's so interesting. It would be something from Frozen. There's no doubt about that. Um, <laughs> that is, that's that's the age she's at. I I actually interviewed a friend's. Uh, he has little twin daughters who are Sophie's age, and so I was. They they came over on a trip. He lives in Texas, and they were going somewhere, and and the little girls were playing, and I'm sort of clandestinely interviewing them. And you know, so would could Pocahontas beat up uh, Rapunzel? And you know, you, you sort of doing. This, I was doing like this Princess Wars thing. Like, who would win in a fight? <laughs> <laughs> Frozen's Ella and um and Rapunzel and so does she and basically Frozen wins everything, you know, because she's got oh, that nice. easy thing. <laughs> um, so what Sophie would definitely pick some song from from Frozen um okay. at that at All this right, age. So, so what about yourself? What is what is Christopher Moore's theme song? Oh God. Um we love doing that. <laughs> I know. So, so mean. This is, and, then, and now we've come to the horror start part of the come on, Mr. Imagination, dance for us. Um <laughs> Okay, again, I'm just sort of doing you know quick word association. The first yeah. thing that came to mind was uh was Springsteen's blinded by the light. Um that uh, I don't know why. I mean when I go back I go, there's not really anything that has to do with me and that, but but you don't have to know why. <laughs> yeah, I, it just always. I, 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 it's funny you would say that because on Twitter the other day I, I said everybody, even if you're not into baseball, you need to pick your walk-up music in case there's an emergency. Mm -hmm. Like I get, I yeah, know, right? all, the Dodgers <laughs> yeah. going, dude, we don't have a second baseman. You need to bat. And it's like, what's your walk-up music? You know, because <laughs> you're just, you just are walking down Melrose, you know, and they, come on, there's nobody to play second base. We need a batter in the third position. Um, <laughs> So anyway, I was just doing that as a goof, and then I said, "Okay, my walk-up music would be um, a holiday Christmas." Um, <laughs> so, so, but I don't. I just think that was the goofiest thing that I could think of. Um, I, my my favorite walk-up music of I, I watch Giants games just because I live in San Francisco, and my favorite walk-up music uh -huh. is the the presentation music from the Lion King when Hunter Pence, our outfielder, oh. comes up and you, da, 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 you know, and I'm like, that's, that's so ironically <laughs> arrogant. You know, he's such a goofy dude. You know, it was like, okay, yeah. I can't have that one, but that would be the one if I could have it. Uh -huh. Nice. Oh, so, I have to um, as a, a Tarkus. Uh, Carnival number nine, welcome back, my friends, to the show. That oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I do get I get that feeling when I sit down to write something, especially if it's hard and I'm just starting, you know, like when I started the Shakespeare uh -huh. book, I'm like, uh, okay, I'm going to write King Lear as a comedy. Uh -huh. Showtime. <laughs> it's showtime. Exactly. You know, so you're, you're right. Yeah. The Emerson Lake and Palmer song is, it's, yeah, because yeah. that's, that's that whole thing where I can't just bullshit about this anymore. I actually have to write yeah. page one and, and, uh, exactly. there you go. <laughs> um, and then right, what's well, the one coming for? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say that that come on and take a free ride. I f I feel that too as a, uh, as a writer. Oh, it's like, nice one. You know, yeah. just give me you know give me four or five pages, and then if you want to put it down, you go ahead. Um, <laughs> and, but you know, just give me give me four or five pages. Answers. We uh, you know we got asked that, and I I was totally you know in an interview we got asked that, and we were. I was totally like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I understand. So that's how that. that's how bullies are made, is that they were bullied when they were children and then they become 
Let's ask some other people that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had to go, go through be, it. Now let's go be mean to another author we don't know. It'd be awesome. We had to go through it, but yeah. So yeah, I want to say I want to say before before we let you go, I I want to say to you that um, you know, it, uh, several years ago, I may not even remember um. I contacted you. I had a different name and everything. It was before I was ever published. And um, I was just fascinated by writing and I was fascinated by certain writers and you were one of them. And I, I started a blog and, and I asked, I, I found a way to contact you and I asked you for um, an author interview on my blog. And um, you got back to me and you said yes, and you did. And um, that was a really big deal to me. Oh, that was really cool. Good. Good. I'm glad. That was really glad, cool. glad to yeah. do that for you. Well, you yeah. know, the thing is, I I've been on the other side of that table, you know, like and by, by yeah. I'm talking about you know like the signing table, and I've done you know I remember going up to meet you know Harlan Ellison um, or Ray Bradbury, <laughs> you know, and just being like, if he says something mean to me, I'm gonna just die. <laughs> You know, yeah, right? Harlan Ellison, he probably did. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know, just like, okay, did I just not breathe for an hour and a half? Um, yeah. And so, and I, and so I try to, you know, I've been doing this twenty five years now, but I, I try to remember what it's like to be on that other side of the table. It's hard yeah. sometimes yeah. because, because my events get kind of they're pretty big, and and so it's hard to give everyone yeah. their their uh, uh, their propers as a human. You know, you, yeah. you get into a process, and you've got people going. You gotta go faster. You gotta go faster. You gotta go faster. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah. but you know, online, if if someone contacts me and they're earnest, and I have time, I try to do that, and I'm glad it worked for you. I, you're very welcome. Yeah, it, you know? it was it was it was very nice, and it was it was a really big deal. And of course, after that, I didn't have any problems getting anybody to do an interview for me. So, <laughs> so it has been. It has oh, been. I said you trolled them with me. I was yeah. like, no, exactly, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Justin Hoffman's in the movie, and you know, he is. Okay, <laughs> I never exactly. thought. Thank you. Yeah. I never thought I was a big yes. enough name to draw anybody else in, but you know, oh, certainly you are. Not in a sense of legitimacy, anyway. It's like really that <laughs> stick in it. I don't think we yeah. were going to be involved in anything like that. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. We. <laughs> no. But it's been, it's been, it's been great um, having you back. And uh, I'm, I'm I'm glad that you did it uh, on this show uh, also. And for the readers, be yes. sure to check out Secondhand Souls. We have read it because we're way cool and we got advanced copies and we love it. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And read it don't anyway. you? To oh, we read the shit yeah. out of it. And you can get one. Of them. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so go to <laughs> is it chrismore.com to learn yeah, more. Yeah, chrismore.com. Yeah, when I bought it, when I bought it, um, yeah. internet domains were really expensive. So my uh, a web friend, a web using friend of mine, said, "Do you want Christopher Moore? Do you want Chris Moore?" And they're like, "Let's get the shortest one to type," and then and, yeah. you know, <laughs> and you know, then I it was like it, it was actually a, to me a fair amount of money to to get them at that point. And if I you know yeah. obviously I would have thought of it in 1993, I would have gone, "Let's buy them all," but you know, yeah. for some yeah. other guy. Well, I'm glad you did because I'm glad you did because as you know, we've both realized recently we can't spell Christopher. 
In fact, every time, every time I've ever emailed you, I've I've called you. Every time I've ever emailed you, I've called you, Chris Ostfer. <laughs> and then they write something, and Tamara's like, "I can't spell Christopher." And I'm like, "I know, right? What is it?" Yeah. <laughs> Well, so Chris, I, I tell people, they go, do you go by Chris or Christopher? And I go, introduce me as Christopher and refer to me as Chris. It's just there easier that way. And, and yeah, uh, But if it makes you feel any better, I don't know how to spell either one of your names either. The guy that did the cover for Soccer Blur, the illustration is named um, Alistair. Um, give me a second. I'll think of it. It's just kind of gone out the window as I started to say it. But his he goes, oh, Alistair fell. Which just sounds like that dude should live in a castle, right? Um, right, right. <laughs> yeah, but he goes by Ali Fell. I didn't even know it was a guy until you know wow, I went through. And I, wow, he really draws boobs well. Um, I'll bet that's. I'll bet that's a guy. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, he. I, I'm thinking like, dude, you had a cool name like Alistair, and you go by Ali. Um, yeah, I know, right? I I don't want to so, be Ali it's probably, or Al. Yeah, it's probably a. That. Yeah, it's probably a spelling. I call him Alice. Yeah. Alice, there you go. Well, it's all Alice. Only when he's bad. No. Well, and with Tamara, Alice. If you call me Alice, I will call you Tammy, <laughs> and I'll call you Chrissy. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. I the restaurant I worked in when I got the the book deal. There was we had a Christina, a Kristen, a Christopher, and a Chris. Um, oh wow! A, a girl, Chris, and and so it was. Yeah, there was a lot of okay. Now you must always be Christopher, and then Chris <laughs> is 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 our boss, the girl. Uh. And Chris, yeah, so it was, and it was a small place. And if you guys have ever worked at a restaurant, it's the sort of you don't have time to go, and I mean you. Um, so so <laughs> I've I've been down that road, but anyway, you guys, thank you for having me. It was fun, and well, uh, it's I'm been glad fantastic. you I appreciate it. With your next book, yeah. Yes, All right. we will. Uh, we will okay. be contacting you when you have something else coming out because we would love to have you back. It has been fantastic. Thank you for being our guest. Um, thank you, everybody, yes. for listening. Uh, until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. <laughs> <laughs>